This is Chapter Twenty One of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter Twenty One Insolent Shopkeepers and Gabbling Americans. Baden Baden sits in the lap of the hills, and the natural and artificial beauties of the surroundings are combined effectively and charmingly. The level strip of ground which stretches through and beyond the town is laid out in handsome pleasure grounds, shaded by noble trees and adorned at intervals with lofty and sparkling fountain jets. Thrice a day a fine band makes music in the public promenade before the conversation house, and in the afternoon and evening that locality is populous with fashionably dressed people of both sexes who march back and forth past the great music stand and look very much bored though they make a show of feeling otherwise it seems like a rather aimless and stupid existence a good many of these people are there for a real purpose however they are racked with rheumatism and they are there to stew it out in the hot baths these invalids looked melancholy enough, limping about on their canes and crutches, and apparently brooding over all sorts of cheerless things. People say that Germany, with her damp stone houses, is the home of rheumatism. If that is so, Providence must have foreseen that it would be so, and therefore filled the land with healing baths. Perhaps no other country is so generously supplied with medicinal springs as Germany some of these baths are good for one ailment some for another and again peculiar ailments are conquered by combining the individual virtues of several different baths for instance for some forms of disease the patient drinks the native hot water of baden-baden with a spoonful of salt from the carlsbad springs dissolved in it that is not a dose to be forgotten right away they don't sell this hot water no, you go into the great Trinkhalle and stand around, first on one foot and then on the other, while two or three young girls sit pottering at some sort of ladylike sewing-work in your neighborhood and can't seem to see you, polite as three-dollar clerks in government offices. By and by one of these rises painfully and stretches, stretches fists and body heavenward, till she raises her heels from the floor at the same time refreshing herself with a yawn of such comprehensiveness that the bulk of her face disappears behind her upper lip and one is able to see how she is constructed inside then she slowly closes her cavern brings down her fists and her heels comes languidly forward contemplates you contemptuously draws you a glass of hot water and sets it down where you can get it by reaching for it you take it and say how much and she returns you with elaborate indifference a beggar's answer nach beliebe what you please this thing of using the common beggar's trick and the common beggar's shibboleth to put you on your liberality when you were expecting a simple straightforward commercial transaction adds a little to your prospering sense of irritation you ignore her reply and ask again how much and she calmly indifferently repeats nach beliebe you are getting angry but you are trying not to show it you resolve to keep on asking your question till she changes her answer or at least her annoyingly indifferent manner therefore if your case be like mine you two fools stand there and without perceptible emotion of any kind or any emphasis on any syllable you look blandly into each other's eyes and hold the following idiotic conversation how much 
How much? Nachbeliebe. 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 I do not know what another person would have done, but at this point I gave up. That cast-iron indifference, that tranquil contemptuousness conquered me, and I struck my colors. Now, I knew she was used to receiving about a penny from manly people who care nothing about the opinions of scullery maids, and about tuppence from moral cowards, but I laid a silver twenty-five-cent piece within her reach, and tried to shrivel her up with this sarcastic speech. "'If it isn't enough, will you stoop sufficiently from your official dignity to say so?' She did not shrivel. Without deigning to look at me at all, she languidly lifted the coin and bit it to see if it was good. Then she turned her back and placidly waddled to her former roost again, tossing the money into an open till as she went along. She was victor to the last, you see. I have enlarged upon the ways of this girl because they are typical. Her manners are the manners of a goodly number of the Baden-Baden shopkeepers. The shopkeeper there swindles you if he can, and insults you whether he succeeds in swindling you or not. The keepers of baths also take great and patient pains to insult you. The frowsy woman who sat at the desk in the lobby of the great Friedrichsbad and sold bath tickets not only insulted me twice every day with rigid fidelity to her great trust, but she took trouble enough to cheat me out of a shilling one day to have fairly entitled her to ten. Baden-Baden's splendid gamblers are gone, only her microscopic knaves remain. An English gentleman, who had been living there several years, said, "'If you could disguise your nationality, you would not find any insolence here. These shopkeepers detest the English and despise the Americans. They are rude to both, more especially to ladies of your nationality and mine. If these go shopping without a gentleman or a manservant, they are tolerably sure to be subjected to petty insolences—insolences of manner and tone rather than word, though words that are hard to bear are not always wanting. I know of an instance where a shopkeeper tossed a coin back to an American lady with the remark, snappishly uttered, "'We don't take French money here,' and I know of a case where an English lady said to one of these shopkeepers, "'Don't you think you ask too much for this article?' And he replied with the question, "'Do you think you are obliged to buy it?' However, these people are not impolite to Russians or Germans, and as to rank, they worship that, for they have long been used to generals and nobles. If you wish to see what abysses servility can descend, present yourself before a Baden-Baden shopkeeper in the character of a Russian prince. It is an inane town filled with sham and petty fraud and snobbery, but the baths are good. I spoke with many people, and they were all agreed in that. I had the twinges of rheumatism unceasingly during three years, but the last one departed after a fortnight's bathing there, and I have never had one since. I fully believe I left my rheumatism in Baden-Baden. Baden-Baden is welcome to it. It was little, but it was all I had to give. I would have preferred to leave something that was catching, but it was not in my power. There are several hot springs there, and during two thousand years they have poured forth a never-diminishing abundance of the healing water. This water is conducted in pipe to the numerous bathhouses, and is reduced to an endurable temperature by the addition of cold water. The new Friedrichsbad is a very large and beautiful building, and in it one may have any sort of bath that has ever been invented, 
and with all the additions of herbs and drugs that his ailment may need, or that the physician of the establishment may consider a useful thing to put into the water. You go there, enter the great door, get a bow graduated to your style and clothes from the gorgeous portier, and a bath-ticket and an insult from the frowsy woman for a quarter. She strikes a bell, and a serving-man conducts you down a long hall and shuts you into a commodious room which has a washstand, a mirror, a boot-jack, and a sofa in it, and there you undress at your leisure. The room is divided by a great curtain. You draw this curtain aside and find a large white marble bathtub, with its rim sunk to the level of the floor, and with three white marble steps leading down to it. This tub is full of water which is as clear as crystal, and is tempered to twenty-eight degrees Reumur, about ninety-five degrees Fahrenheit. Sunk into the floor by the tub is a covered copper box which contains some warm towels and a sheet. You look fully as white as an angel when you are stretched out in that limpid bath. You remain in it ten minutes, the first time, and afterward increase the duration from day to day, till you reach twenty-five or thirty minutes. There you stop. The appointments of the place are so luxurious, the benefits so marked, the price so moderate, and the insults so sure, that you very soon find yourself adoring the Friedrichbad and infesting it. We had a plain, simple, unpretending good hotel in Baden-Baden, the Hotel de France, and alongside my room I had a giggling, cackling, chattering family who always went to bed just two hours after me and always got up two hours ahead of me. But this is common in German hotels. The people generally go to bed long after eleven and get up long before eight. The partitions convey sound like a drumhead, and everybody knows it. But no matter. A German family who are all kindness and consideration in the daytime make apparently no effort to moderate their noises for your benefit at night. They will sing, laugh, and talk loudly, and bang furniture around in a most pitiless way. If you knock on your wall appealingly, they will quiet down and discuss the matter softly among themselves for a moment. Then, like the mice, they fall to persecuting you again, and as vigorously as before. They keep cruelly late and early hours for such noisy folk. Of course, when one begins to find fault with foreign people's ways, he is very likely to get a reminder to look nearer home before he gets far with it. I open my notebook to see if I can find some more information of a valuable nature about Baden-Baden, and the first thing I fall upon is this. Baden-Baden, no date. Lot of vociferous Americans at breakfast this morning, talking at everybody, while pretending to talk among themselves, on their first travels manifestly, showing off, the usual signs, airy, easy-going references to grand distances and foreign places. Well, good-bye, old fellow. If I don't run across you in Italy, you hunt me up in London before you sail. The next item, which I find in my notebook, is this one. The fact that a band of six thousand Indians are now murdering our frontiersmen at their impudent leisure, and that we are only able to send one thousand two hundred soldiers against them, is utilized here to discourage emigration to America. The common people think the Indians are in New Jersey. This is a new and peculiar argument against keeping our army down to a ridiculous figure in the matter of numbers. It is rather a striking one, too. I have not distorted the truth in saying that the facts in the above item, about the army and the Indians, are made use of to discourage emigration to America. 
that the common people should be rather foggy in their geography, and foggy as to the location of the Indians, is a matter for amusement, maybe, but not of surprise. There is an interesting old cemetery in Baden-Baden, and we spent several pleasant hours in wandering through it and spelling out the inscriptions on the aged tombstones. Apparently, after a man has laid there a century or two, and has had a good many people buried on top of him, it is considered that his tombstone is not needed by him any longer. I judge so from the fact that hundreds of old gravestones have been removed from the graves and placed against the inner walls of the cemetery. What artists they had in the old times! They chiseled angels and cherubs and devils and skeletons on the tombstones in the most lavish and generous way, as to supply, but curiously grotesque and outlandish as to form. It is not always easy to tell which of the figures belong among the blessed, and which of them among the opposite party. But there was an inscription in French on one of those old stones, which was quaint and pretty, and was plainly not the work of any other than a poet. It was to this effect. Here reposes in God Caroline de Clery, a religieuse of Saint-Denis, aged eighty-three years, and blind. The light was restored to her in Baden, the 5th of January, 1839. We made several excursions on foot to the neighboring villages, over winding and beautiful roads, and through enchanting woodland scenery. The woods and roads were similar to those at Heidelberg, but not so bewitching. I suppose that roads and woods which are up to the Heidelberg mark are rare in the world. Once we wandered clear away to La Favorita Palace, which is several miles from Baden-Baden. The grounds about the palace were fine. The palace was a curiosity. It was built by a margravine in 1725, and remains as she left it at her death. We wandered through a great many of its rooms, and they all had striking peculiarities of decoration. For instance, the walls of one room were pretty completely covered with small pictures of the margravine in all conceivable varieties of fanciful costumes, some of them male. The walls of another room were covered with grotesquely and elaborately figured hand-wrought tapestry. The musty ancient beds remained in the chambers, and their quilts and curtains and canopies were decorated with curious handwork, and the walls and ceilings frescoed with historical and mythological scenes in glaring colors. There was enough crazy and rotten rubbish in the building to make a true bric-a-bracker green with envy. A painting in the dining-hall verged upon the indelicate, but then the margravine was herself a trifle indelicate. It is in every way a wildly and picturesquely decorated house, and brimful of interest as a reflection of the character and tastes of that rude bygone time. In the grounds, a few rods from the palace, stands the margravine's chapel, just as she left it, a coarse wooden structure, wholly barren of ornament. It is said that the margravine would give herself up to debauchery and exceedingly fast living for several months at a time, and then retire to this miserable wooden den, and spend a few months in repenting and getting ready for another good time. She was a devoted Catholic, and was perhaps quite a model sort of a Christian, as Christians went then, in high life. Tradition says she spent the last two years of her life in the strange den I have been speaking of, after having indulged herself in one final triumphant and satisfying spree. She shut herself up there, without company, and without even a servant, and so abjured and forsook the world. 
in her little bit of a kitchen she did her own cooking she wore a hair shirt next to the skin and castigated herself with whips these aids to grace are exhibited there yet she prayed and told her beads in another little room before a waxen virgin niched in a little box against the wall she bedded herself like a slave in another small room is an unpainted wooden table and behind it sit half life-size waxen figures of the holy family made by the very worst artist that ever lived perhaps and clothed in gaudy flimsy drapery note number one the savior was represented as a lad of about fifteen years of age this figure had lost one eye End of note. the margravine used to bring her meals to this table and dine with the holy family what an idea that was what a grisly spectacle it must have been imagine it those rigid shock-headed figures with corpsey complexions and fish-glass eyes occupying one side of the table in the constrained attitudes and dead fixedness that distinguish all men that are born of wax and this wrinkled smouldering old fire-eater occupying the other side mumbling her prayers and munching her sausages in the ghostly stillness and shadowy indistinctness of a winter twilight it makes one feel crawly even to think of it in this sordid place and clothed bedded and fed like a pauper this strange princess lived and worshipped during two years and in it she died two or three hundred years ago this would have made the poor den holy ground and the church would have set up a miracle factory there and made plenty of money out of it the den could be moved into some portions of france and made a good property even now End of chapter twenty one